on. Oh, it's on. Breezy, I got it figured out now. I'm like super high, super high tech. Um, have you watched the news this week? <laughs> um, we live in interesting times, to say the least. And I was reminded today in Second Chronicles. 12, 32. 1 Chronicles, I'm sorry, 12. Um, David is kind of, uh, it's giving the, the, the list. If you've watched The Lord of the Rings, I watched that with my daughter uh, over the weekend, Madeline, who's into big flying creatures, and my wife is just not so much into that, so she went upstairs. But anyway, uh, the images of these armies that would come and would come to their assistance and aid, and that's kind of what's happening is a little bit of a roll call for David. And it talks about the men of Judah carrying shield and spear. There were 6,800 of them. Men of Simeon, warriors ready for battle. There were 7,100 of them. The men of Levi, there were 4,600, that's verse 26. and verse 29, the men of Benjamin, Saul's kingsmen, there were 3,000. Verse 30, the men of Ephraim, the brave warriors, famous in their own clans, there were 20,000 of them. The men of the half-tribe of Manasseh, designated by name to come and make David king, 18,000. Verse 33, the men of Zebulun, experienced soldiers, prepared for battle with every type of weapon. These were the bad-to-the-bone guys. Uh, Undivided loyalty, it says, to help David with that. And there were 50,000 of them. It's quite the army he's assembled, right? The men of Naphtali, there were 1,000 officers together with 37,000 men carrying shields and spears. The men of Dan, ready for battle, there were 28,600 of them. The men of Asher, experienced soldiers, prepared for battle, 40,000. And from east of the Jordan, men of Reuben, Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Manasseh, armed with every type of weapon, 120,000. Maybe you noticed I skipped over verse 32, the men of Issachar, who it says that, who understood the times and knew what Israel should do. I think the King James understood the times that they lived in and knew what Israel should do. 200 chiefs, all with their relatives under their command. There were 200 of these guys that just had their mind wrapped around the time that they lived in. And I would pray that as conduit, we're not very large, right? There's not a lot of us, even when we're online or whatever. There's just not many of us. But my prayer would be that we could be like the men of Issachar, that we could understand the times that we live in, and to know what we're to do about it. And when I look at the times that we live in, Jesus said in Matthew, I think it's 16, verse 2, he was talking to the Pharisees. And he says, when evening comes, you say, it's, it'd be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, today, It will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. Interesting. He's basically telling them, look, you guys are boneheads. (laughs) You could could tell by the weather, the, the sky is red. This is how the weather is. But you don't know the sign of the times. Interesting, too, because if you think about Jesus Luke chapter 19. Do you remember the scene when he was riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, right? And it says Luke 19.41. You can write it down and go there later if you want. Or As he approached the city, Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. If you'd only known what was about to happen, you should have known. You should know. Because it's the Pharisees, you guys should know what that day was about. 
that particular day, that specific day, you should have known, but you don't. And Jesus, it says you wept over them because they didn't. They didn't understand the time in which they lived. And interesting for you uh, mathematicians, and I bet there's a room full of them, right? Um, Jesus was specifically talking about, if you have your Bible, go to Daniel chapter 9 with me. Because I want to show you something fascinating. Chapter 9, verse 22. Gabriel is here. And Gabriel, whenever you see Gabriel making an appearance in the scriptures, it's him talking about the coming of Messiah, of Christos. You know, he's talking about Jesus coming. So whenever you see him teeing it up, that's what he's about to talk about. And he says in Daniel chapter 9, verse 22, He instructed me and said to me, Daniel, I have now come to give you insight and understanding. As soon as you began to pray, an answer was given, which I have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed. Therefore, consider the message and understand the vision. In verse 24, it says, Seventy sevens are decreed for your people, your holy city to finish transgression, to put an end to sin, to atone for wickedness, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy and to anoint the most holy. If you've got a King James, I think it says that uh, 70, it had been determined for Israel. And for these 77s, that this is what it is for. It's to uh, finish the transgression, to put an end to your sin, to atone for your wickedness. There's this period of time that God has given for Israel for these things to happen. In in the Hebrew, the seven, by the way, is a word called Shabuah, right? You can impress all your Hebrew friends that you know the word Shabuah. Shabuah was a period, a unit of seven, okay? Like us, we have a decade, right? Ten years is a decade, right? So a a unit of seven, so it could have been a week or it could have been a seven-year period. For them, a decade is Shabuah time. And in Genesis 29, 27, if you remember that, that the scene where Laban said to Jacob, you can, you can have her, Rachel, if you fulfill your week, the, the week. And it says that he worked for seven years. It was, it's an example of, of a seven-week period being a seven-year period of time, okay? Follow me on this. I promise it's germane to what we're talking about. Because keeping in mind, Jesus said this, to, if you only knew, okay? And I know this is hard stuff, but look, we need to be like the men of Issachar. We need to understand the times. We need to not be like the Pharisees who didn't understand the time that they lived in. But so a period of 77s, okay? And how many is 70 periods of seven? 490. Interesting, by the way, what did Jesus say when how many times should I forgive someone? He said 70 times seven. Maybe there wasn't a meticulous time of how many I could keep track of the sins as much as it was the period of time when Jesus would return for that second. Anyway, that's Conjecture on my part is just fascinating. 70 times 7. So 77 year periods of time, which is 490 years in totality. Okay, now follow me this. He says this, by the way, to understand this from the issuing of the decree, okay, from this moment now, where Gabriel says, from this moment, there's 490 years to restore and to rebuild Jerusalem until the anointed one, the ruler, comes. There will be 70. Uh, there will be, I'm sorry, seven sevens, okay, in verse 25, there will be seven sevens and 62 sevens. It will be rebuilt with streets and a trench, but in times of trouble. After the 62 sevens, the anointed one will be cut off and have nothing. And I think I speak for all of us when I say, what? (laughs) Huh? (laughs) Let me, let me unpack this for you, okay? The reason he splits it up, first of all, is this, okay? When you look at the, uh, the seven sevens, how much is seven times seven, math students? 49. That's how long it took from the moment that this decree, because keep in mind, when this decree was made, the temple was decimated. It was in ruins and it was trashed. But from the moment that, the, that started to the moment that the temple was together, there was a 49, it took 49 years, okay? You follow this? And then from that moment on, from after the temple was rebuilt, there was another 62 sevens for a total of 490 years, okay? Until this, 
Jesus is riding into Jerusalem and he says, you don't understand if you'd only known the times that you live in. Because it was on April 6th. Now keep in mind, this was March 14th, 445 BC. You write that down, remember it, understand the times that they lived in. This was March 14th, 445 BC. And so if you take 490, okay, times, let me get this right, I want to make sure it's right. So it's 483 years in totality. Because if you did that number, by the way, I'm sorry, I know you guys are going to get confused. I promise I'll circle this up, okay? I should have a whiteboard, shouldn't I? I apologize, I should have a whiteboard. Follow me. He explains 62 and 7, which is how many? Write this number down. 62 and 7, 69, okay? So there's 69 seven-year periods, okay? Mm-hmm. It's 483 for those keeping track at home. 483. Now, in the... Listen to this. I'm, this is 483 years, okay? Times how many days in a year? Unless you're in the Jewish calendar or the Babylonian calendar, which is 360 days. Okay? You should be... 173,880 days. Now, if you want to go home and do this and do the math on this, what you would figure out is that April 6th, okay, AD 32 was exactly 173,880 days from the time that this was said. Jesus was riding into Jerusalem saying, if you only understood the times that you lived in. And he wept because they didn't get it. He was riding into town and a week later, it says what? That the anointed will be cut off and will have nothing. And I think in the King James, it says for nothing or it's, it's alluding to the fact that he didn't do anything. So the anointed one is going to ride into town and he's going to be cut off, cut down, just like what happened with Jesus. And Jesus, when he came into the city, as Daniel prophesied, it was a week later. That, that day they went, shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna to the Lord. And it was a week later, not, not even a week later, that same week, that the same folks saying Hosanna were saying, we'll have, we won't have this man rule over us. Crucify him. They didn't understand the times that they were living in. But interesting, because if you are an astute mathematician, you've noticed that we've only covered 69 of the 70 seven-year periods of time. There's still another week out there. And if you're a, a prophecy student, you know that that's the seven-year, the Daniel's 70th week. There's all these little titles for it. And I don't want to get caught up in any of that. But there is a period of time that hasn't happened yet. The 69th week happened and Jesus rode into town and did his deal. And it says this, by the way, look at verse 26. That during this 70th week now, the people of the ruler who will come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end will come like a flood. War will continue until the end. Desolations have been decreed. He will confirm a covenant with many for one seven. For one seven-year period. This is the final. This is the 70th week. In the middle of the seven, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. And on a wing of the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end that is decreed is poured upon him. This is a period of time that hasn't happened yet. There's another period, and so we have a couple of options. Either A, Daniel got it wrong, or B, there's a period of time that's still to come. There's a period of time that will come when a man will rise up. And, and FYI, if you, if you hear people, you see people on the blog saying it's Obama, newsflash, we don't know who it is. In fact, the Bible specifically says in Thessalonians that we won't know who it is until after, and it talks about the church being removed from the scene, and that's a whole other conversation. But, but we won't know. So while I appreciate everybody's enthusiasm and wanting to guess who it is and all the books have been written about it, we can't know, so we might as well just not even try. It's like a, yeah, well, anyway, get myself in trouble. <laughs> Save your emails, I apologize. Um, 
it says he's going to be the prince, not the prince of peace, right? And, I, and I've joked about it. It's like if you've watched the Superman series, it's bizarro Superman, right? The exact opposite of Jesus, exact opposite of who he is. But it's a guy that's going to come, and he's going to bring a covenant with many. And it, in other passages, basically it's a covenant with the whole world. Uh, brings peace to the Middle East. Peace to the world. Because when you think about it right now, guys, with, with a few notable exceptions... The major peace crisis in our world is really simple. It comes down to one region. It comes down to one country. And the concentric circles tighten even more to one city, to one mountain. Because that's really what it's about, is that one place. The Jews say that that's ours and the the Muslims say it's theirs. And while I appreciate all of the things that we've tried to do for peace, until we figure out that, and I believe when you see this, that he will put an end to, the, to sacrifice. It means that sacrifices have to have started again. And so you think about it, what a great way to bring peace to the world, to be the guy to be able to say that we can build a temple and a mosque side by side on the Temple Mount. There's room, 100 yards to the north. There's room to build a temple on this mountain. And what a, what a hero this guy will look like to be able to say to us, we have a, we have a global financial crisis. We have a... a nation that literally the only option right now is to in their minds is to wipe Israel off the face of the earth but if he comes in and figures out a way to do this Israel's happy the Muslims are happy everybody it says well this is our guy it's our guy and even it says Jerusalem the Jews the people of Israel and I've been by the way maybe in a couple weeks we'll talk about this I've been seeing some stuff lately on the lost tribes that aren't lost after all pockets of people in the Amazon and in India that are genetically being proved with DNA are Jews. They're Israelis. Uh, We'll talk about that later because it's interesting because one of the prophecies that I've seen, it talks about the Jews and it talks about Israel. Those are two different groups of people. But anyway, that's for another time. It's fascinating. Tonight, the thing that's, that's kind of heavy on my heart as I've thought today and I've prayed and thought about tonight is that we at Conduit are living in a time where you don't have to be a brain surgeon, you don't have to be a rocket scientist, you don't even have to be able to drive to see this is really, really an uncomfortable time right now. It's the first time in history where literally globally, okay, not just a a pocket of the world where the Roman Empire in one continent is a problem, the entire globe is mired in this. And this past week we saw Gordon Brown from England announcing that what we need is a global bailout solution. We've got our country, I was watching on CNN yesterday, Farid Zachariah, one of my favorite Muslims, um, had a panel of folks talking about our own bailout plan. And I loved it because it was this even deal that wasn't anybody out there shooting, you know, scare tactics. It was basically these economists on CNN saying, we're not just making this up. We have to actually go borrow this money as a country. So our America, we're going to sell bonds to places like China, to places, to other countries. And what they said, which I'd never thought about before, was, and think about what will happen when you take a trillion dollars out of play from the global market. A trillion dollars that is no longer in play. It's being put into our economy. Think of what will happen in nations that need that money, whose people are hungry. Who are, you know, it, it really it, it evokes some interesting stuff that we're not hearing a lot about right now. Because we're basically setting up a scene for where the world is in trouble and where the world is going to need one person to come in and say, I got it, I got the solution. And so... Maybe you disagree with me. That's fine. But the question that I would propose to you tonight is if we understand the times that we live in, what are we to do? Now, some people would say that, well, we should go and buy gold weapons and move to Montana. Okay? Build walls and wait for the end to come. And we could, you know, which I think is just fascinating because the fact is if I own a gun and we're invaded by like Korea... I'm still going to get killed. I might be able to kill a people, a couple people on the way out. But you know what I mean? It's like, so do I kill a couple and get killed? Or, you know, so the idea of buying weapons, while I appreciate the enthusiasm, even common sense, is it really going to help? But, but the question is, what are we to do? If we understand the times that we live in, and Jesus said, look, and go with me to 1 Thessalonians, okay? Follow me on this. And if you're skeptical, follow me on a couple things and, and just ask the Lord to, to speak to you. And if he says that I'm wrong, then... I apologize. But 1 Thessalonians, listen to what 
Listen to what Paul says to the people of Thessalonica. He says this, Now, brothers, about the times and dates, chapter 5, verse 1, we don't need to write to you, for you know very well what the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Because you'll hear people say, by the way, we don't need to worry about any of this because we're not going to know anyway. So we don't, it's a waste of time. I don't worry about prophecy. I don't worry about that stuff. Two-thirds of the Bible is prophecy. Jesus talked about prophecy. Every epistle talks about prophecy. I suggest that we should talk about prophecy. Not because it's uncomfortable, we skip it, uh, but we should talk about it. Jesus was comfortable with it. But he says this, and he says, you don't have to be ignorant because the day will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, listen to this, peace and safety. Destruction will come on them suddenly. Every interview, every article that I'm reading right now, it's interesting because what, what have we heard from our country? Freedom is what we want, okay? That's not what we're hearing right now. Security and peace. That's what I hear. And, I, and, and there was a fascinating article that I read. They were interviewing people from Russia. Why would they embrace communism again? And what they said was they've never known freedom. All they want is peace and they want security. They want safety. That's it. They don't, freedom is of no use to them. What they want is their bread to be there on time and they want to not get killed. Those are pretty much their, what they, that's their dream. In a time when they're saying peace and safety, which is really, we've changed our entire motto from freedom to we want peace and security. That's even our administration's current policies right now. It's not about freedoms, it's about peace and it's about security. In a time when they're saying peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman and they will not escape. Once the launch code, I've been to this rodeo four times, okay? Mrs. Tyler is good at having babies, okay? And I mean, once that launch code is initiated, there's no going back, okay? And I'm telling you, Shannon, she's good at it. Like, we're the kind of couple that if we do, you mean, we're the kind of couple that could have had the baby on the side of the road. Because I'm telling you, there's none of this 24 hours of painful labor. It's like, boom, the baby's coming. That's the picture. Birth, by the way, is bloody. It's disgusting. It smells bad. They don't tell you that, by the way, young couples, FYI. And all the videos, they never tell you. You're like, oh, the inside of a human body. A buddy of mine told me once, it smells like I was, they were gutting a deer. I was like, that's it. That's the smell. The inside of a human body. Apologize. But that's the image that talks about, like a woman, it talks about the earth is travailing in birth. But here's the thing, gang, as bloody and disgusting as it is and painful, birth is beautiful. And the end of it, the, the, which is a new beginning, is incredible. And it's so incredible that a woman will sign up for this again. And I'm telling you, if you've never seen... It's like the equivalent of a guy shoving a ham through his nose. Like, it's just... <laughs> A horrifying thing to witness, okay? But it's such an amazing thing that the woman signs up for it again. My wife, dude, I'm telling you right now, if it didn't cost like a half a million dollars to raise a child, my wife would have another one right now. She sees a baby and she just, I mean, the tears flow because she just loves babies. I'm thinking, do you not remember? <laughs> Look what that, that, I mean, seriously, I've been on the business end and it's not cool. But, but it's beautiful. And what we're about to experience in our world, what we are experiencing, the launch code that has been initiated is the birth of the kingdom of God. And it says, you brothers, verse 4, Listen to this. You're not in darkness. Listen to this. So this day should not surprise you like a thief in the night. Isn't that interesting? We miss that, don't we? We think that we're supposed, we're not going to know, so why care? It says, but you brothers, you're not in the dark. You shouldn't be surprised. We do not belong. We're the sons of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, listen to this. Let us not be like the others who are what? Asleep. Complacency. A lot of folks that are just kind of, I don't want to know about it. I just don't want to think about it. I just want to go on with my life. Sleeping. But let us be alert. Let us be self-controlled. 
For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath, but to receive salvation through our Lord Christ Jesus. Therefore, verse 11, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you're doing. I don't come to you tonight with a buzzkill bummer deal to bum you out. I've come to encourage you, to build you up, and to say, gang, this is, the, this is it. Like, this is really exciting. God is in control. I was reading in uh, Habakkuk today, or Habakkuk, depending on which emphasis of the syllable you use. Habakkuk was griping to God about the nation of Babylon and this. And, and he says, you don't have to go there. I'll read it to you. Uh, it's on page 829. But you know what? Go to Matthew 25 because we're going to land on that. And then I want to hear from you. But here's what, here's what God said. This was Habakkuk, okay? And he was talking about a people, Babylon. He says, Lord, what are you doing in verse 2? How long must I call for help, but you don't listen? I cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict. He's talking about this nation that is crushing them. And I've thought about this too. God, for, I mean, seriously, why not now? Come in here and open up a can and just do it now. Set it all right, every injustice. Every Chavez, every Castro, every Hitler, just get him out. But listen to what he says here in verse 5. He says, this is the Lord's answer. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed. For I am going to do something in your days that you would not believe, even if I told you. I'm raising up the Babylonians, that ruthless and impetuous people, who sweep across the whole earth to seize dwelling places not their own. They are a feared and dreaded people. They are a law to themselves, promote their own honor. Their horses are swifter than leopards, fiercer than wolves at dusk. The cavalry gallops headlong. Horsemen come from afar. They fly like a vulture swooping to devour. And they all come bent on violence. Their hordes advance like a desert wind and gather prisoners like sand. They deride kings and scoff at rulers, they laugh at all fortified cities. They build earthen ramps and capture them. Then they sweep past like the wind and go on. Guilty men who's listening, whose own strength is their God. God, and, and we, we, we don't have time to get into it tonight, but goes on to talk about what's going to happen. But God rose up the Babylonian people for a purpose. In the same reason that he rose up the, king, uh, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. He said, we read that last week, I did it for my glory not because I'm a glory hog, but so that the whole world would know that I am God. In an act of mercy, he raises up the Babylonians to prove to the whole world that he is God. He did it with Pharaoh, and I believe right now that he's doing it again. I believe he is setting the scene for a, a moment that he, only God can get us out of. We don't have to be afraid because God himself is doing it. God himself is setting the scene so that the whole world, so that everybody that has breath in their body will have an opportunity to say, yeah, that's God. He is righteous. He is true. I want him to be the Lord over me. Or inexplicably, which we see in the book of Revelation after 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams are running around preaching, after two prophets are killed in the streets preaching and then watched by the entire world as they raise from the dead, and we see angels flying around the atmosphere with bullhorns preaching the gospel. And yet some people still said, I don't want him to be the Lord of my life. Those are hard-hearted people. They're evil people. And he gives them every opportunity possible to repent. That's our God. He's loving. And in our world right now, when you look at, I don't understand. I don't understand. I don't like it that our country right now is about to, there was a law that was just rescinded off the books about, that's called the conscience law that, that Bush had put into place that said, if you are a doctor, you should not have to be able to be forced to do an abortion should you not want to. It's a conscience clause that was taken off the books. And interestingly, because you know, the, 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 the spin was, well, 
we don't want to, we want to review this policy to make sure it matches with our things. And, and so those that would agree with him would say, well, so he, just, he just wants to get a closer look at it. It was enacted very quickly. We want to make sure that it gets, you know, looked at properly. That sounds great until you realize that it was a few years ago that it was our current president that actually introduced with another guy the conscience clause, the conscience law. He introduced it as a bill that never got off the ground. But it was a law that they want to bring back, that the senator that was his co-sponsor of the bill is going to bring back to legislation that says, if you're a doctor in this country and someone comes to you and says, I want to kill my baby, you are legally required to do that for them. Uh, there was an article this last week that the Catholic hospitals, would they're going to shut down before they let this law, before a Catholic doctor has to do this. Think about the hundreds of hospitals that would be shuttered. I don't know that they'll exactly do that. What I'm saying, though, is this. I don't want to get mired in the details. To say this, I don't understand it. I don't get it. It makes me kind of upset and makes me freaked out unless I take a step back and say, oh, but God, you're still in control. And I don't understand it this side of heaven. One day I'm going to stand before him and I'm going to say, oh, righteous and true are your judgments. That's why you did it that way. I get it now. Meantime, it's faith. Now, Matthew 25, what do we do in the meantime? Okay. What do we do if we're understanding the times we're living in is in what I believe is a time where God is setting the, play, the players in place, the pieces in their rightful positions to set up the ultimate showdown, the ultimate moment where the entire world will see that I am God, indisputable. For a thousand years after that, when we're on this earth, no one will be able to look back because we'll still be humans. There'll still be humans born. There will still be, and they'll all be able to look back and say, ah, but look, he's clearly God. Remember that whole thing like with the giant hornets? He's clearly God. No question about it. We tried it on our own. We tried all of our governments. We tried everything from capitalism. We tried dictatorships. We tried monarchies. None of it worked. But Jesus, it says in Isaiah, the government will be upon his shoulders. That government is right. And if you're, a, anyway, Matthew 25, what do you and I do? If we're to be the men and women of Issachar for our day, how do we live? What should we do? They knew what to do. What do we do? Now, what we've seen historically is we go on TBN, we write scary books and make movies and make a lot of money when we talk about the times, okay? And I want you to understand that just because you've seen some kooky guy on the TV that had a weird hairpiece talking about this stuff doesn't mean it isn't true and it isn't legit, okay? And trust me, a lot of these guys with the crazy hair pieces, they know what they're talking about. If you hear them rattling off scripture, you're like, wow, that guy really is smart. And some of them, sure, they've done it for selfish gain, but I go to Colossians and Paul says, yes, yeah, sure, some preach gospel for selfishness, some preach Christ for purity. And Paul says, what do I say about this? At least Christ is being preached. Paul didn't start a radio show and blast everybody's theology. He said, at least Christ is being preached. So in Matthew 25, Jesus was asked by his disciples over in Matthew 24, how will we know the signs of the end? This is the only time Jesus ever talks about judgment. And it's the, only, it's the longest answer. Whenever Jesus was asked a question, he usually answered with a question. This is the longest answer on record of Jesus answering a question. How will we know the signs of the end? Two, two chapters of this. He tells stories. He tells parables. He talks about there'll be wars and rumors of wars. But he ends with this. In Matthew 25, this famous passage of, of Scripture, this famous command of Jesus. Because he says, on that day, you and I, in the day of the Lord, we'll stand before him. And he says he's going to move the sheep to one side and the goats to the other. And he's going to ask them, did you go to church every Sunday? Did you give tithes? Did you read your Bible every day? He doesn't say any of that, does it? No, it says, I'm going to ask him on that day. Uh, it says, the king will uh, say to his right, come on, you who are blessed by my father. Take your inheritance. Listen to this. Prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry. You gave me something to eat. I was thirsty. You gave me something to drink. And I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was talking to Philip earlier today on, online. And he said that, that he was realizing that when we provide clothes for somebody, that what we're doing is... We're helping them with their shame. Think about when you go to church and you don't have clothes to wear at all. or clothes It's, it's, it's embarrassing. It's, it's humiliating. And it's covering their shame when we provide clothes for somebody to wear. It says, you gave me clothes. Um, I was a stranger. You invited me in. I needed clothes. You clothed me. I was very sick. You looked after me. 
I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer, Lord, when did we do this, right? When did we see you hungry, right? And the answer is Jesus isn't hungry. He rolls deep, right? He's God. He don't, he's not hungry. We're a people that needs to serve. It's ingrained inside of us and we can't serve a God who has no needs. So what we do is we serve each other. We serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. And by doing that, we get credit as if we've served the Lord himself because he's in those. He's in the least of these. He says, when did you see a stranger in need of clothing? When did we see a sick or in prison? The king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. What are we to do? If we are to understand the times, what do we do? Do we go to church? Do we need to, get, do we need to be nice? Do we need to stop cussing? Do we need to stop watching you know, naughty movies? And yeah, you know the answer when you talk about what happens uh, when you see what Paul says and John, they say, yeah, live pure, live clean, cleanly, live. It's, but it's also like living like you're in high school in the senior year. You know, you're leaving. It's an exciting time. You're like, woohoo, I'm out of here. Woohoo, poohoo. Uh, it's, it's an exciting time. I'm living like I'm leaving, right? But it's a time when we, if we're looking for what do we do, and you're looking for, hey, what? I wonder what that conversation is going to go like on that day when I'm in front of the Lord. Bingo. This is it. Not that it was wrong to go to church. Not that you guys shouldn't be here on a Monday night or whatever. Those are all things that are important in your spiritual growth. But man, if you're looking for where do I start? Right here, feeding, clothing, serving the least of these brothers of mine, whether they're in Africa or whether they're in Columbia, Tennessee, that's what we're to be doing. It's really simple. And if you're not doing those things in your life, find a place to start because it's never too late to start right now. And it's a great, beautiful picture because Paul says in Corinthians, just give what you have you know, available. Whether it's you only have a little bit of talent or a little bit of money, just whatever, whatever you're able to do. What we've done at Conduit is we've been able to give money. None of us have a lot of it and we give away what we're able to give and God blesses and he multiplies it. Some of us have given of our time and of our resources and of, of the spirit inside of us. But that's what we're to do. We're not to be bench warmers. We didn't just sign up for a club. This isn't like a lifestyle choice like being a Democrat or Republican. This is a new existence. We were born again. And what are we to do? We are to understand the times that we live in. Then we will do Matthew 25. And awesome the day will be when we stand before the Lord. And he says, yeah, you did it for me. You fed me, you clothed me. I mean, imagine the potency of that moment of a job well done and the Holy Ghost high five. Come on in. Let's pray. Father, uh, might we be like the men and the women of Issachar, that we might understand the times that we live in and that we know what to do about them. It isn't our job to be spookier, to be scarier, to be freaked out. Lord, might we not go buy gold and weapons and hide out in Nebraska, but might we begin immediately serving the least of these brothers of mine? That's what you've said. In the entire context of you talking about the end times, you end it. Your crescendo, Lord, was about what we're doing here at Conduit. We're not a large group. We're not a powerful group, Lord. We're small, but might we be wise and might we understand in Jesus' name, amen. Does anybody have any commentary, any questions, anything that I missed? Anything jump out at you? Any of my math bad? Anybody online? Jay's going to lead us in worship one more time before we leave, just because I think what a, what a great way to respond to what we've heard and to turn it back to the Lord. This isn't about us, about you, about me. It's about the Lord, ultimately. I love these promises from the Lord because I don't know how people get, and maybe you think, well, this is you're just using it as a crutch. Well, I'll walk with pride then, but how do you live in these times without the hope that Jesus will return? I don't know what it'll look like. I suspect it won't look anything like a Kirk Cameron movie, but maybe it will. I don't know. I just know it will, and I know that I'll be blown away by it. And I can look at my children, my four children, and if I didn't have this hope, I'd be like, man, what have I done? 
what world have I brought my children into? But I don't have to. I can say, oh God, you're in control. You got it. And if I really trust that the Lord is in control and trust that God has my best interest in mind, I don't have to be afraid at all. I don't have to be arrogant or cocky. I can just be confident and say, oh God, you got it under control. I'm, I'm under the wing of your protection, the shelter of the Almighty. It doesn't mean I won't be uncomfortable. I mean, God led Israel to the desert for three days, starting, you know, warms them up with three days of the desert with nothing to drink. It doesn't mean I won't maybe get uncomfortable, but it means that ultimately God is in control and whatever he has for me, I trust him and his judgment. So, Nothing else? No words of questions? I've gone through counseling for all the things you have, or whenever I have an opportunity to help some of these people in the situation, that's when I feel safe. The biggest thing that happened in my life, you know, the beautiful end of helping to other people, is hearing about it. What's interesting is this. I was in, I grew up in a church where people would go to conferences to quote seek the presence of the Lord, or they would go to a different church because the, the the presence of the Lord is in this church. And I understand what they mean. They talk about the Shekinah glory or whatever. But if you're looking for the presence of the Lord, and He says I'm in the least of these brothers of mine, if you're looking for the Lord, just go right there. You look no further than the joy of a child in Haiti or Africa or Colombia. It's like oh, that's the Lord. In those moments, I felt I felt Him more there. That's why when it says, I think it talks about sending the 72 disciples out two by two, they came back full of joy because of what they had seen. You're depressed, man, get your butt on the mission field. Get out, you know, it'll cure it in a hurry. Uh, see if anybody, uh, sons of Amos, bring it on <laughs> from servant. Mark Means says, I always think about when we deal with a person, treat them in a godly way. I'll build myself a big funeral. <laughs> Okay. It's kind of funny. It's like I have two Bible studies going on right <laughs> I meant to talk about Exodus 16 tonight in ingesting the word, eating the word. We'll talk about that next week. And I just felt really heavy on me today. Not, not in a heavy, like deep, depressing way, but a heavy, like a really need to get this off my spiritual chest kind of way. And uh, I hope it meant something for you and to encourage you, if nothing else, that, hey, it's going to be okay. You don't have to be freaked out. I mean, if Obama sets up a dictatorship tomorrow, which he won't, um, if North Korea lobs a missile, which they might, yeah, we don't have to be, what's that? North Korea? No, I didn't see that today. (laughs) Mm. Understand the times that we live in. So a lot of moving parts in our world right now. <laughs> anyway, Jay? I lift my eyes up to the mountain where does my help comes from you, maker of heaven, creator of the earth. Oh, I need you, Lord. You are my only hope. You are my only prayer. So I will wait for you to come and rescue me. Oh,
understand when we look at the cross when we look at what you did for us what you're doing for us what you're going to continue to do for us we understand that you really do love us like in not some ooey gooey I got a crush on you kind of way you love us like you act on it and that agape kind of love, and might we respond to that back as we serve you by serving those around us. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think about it, our need is to serve one another. My most joyful moments have not come I mean, think about like when you get that latest, greatest prize, even the iPhone, okay? Now, it's cool, right? But it wears off, the new, the you know? Except for a couple of Mac heads, like, whatever, dude. <laughs> but when you're a kid, I see it in my kids all the time. I get them some cool new gift that they wanted so bad, the Nerf blaster or whatever, and then it's over. 
you know, they've seen, they've experienced the, the cynicism that happens in going to McDonald's and looking at the picture and the toy and realizing that is not at all what I just got. <laughs> but the love of the Lord, like it's, is so great in us that my need is to actually serve. And that is when I'm joyful. When I write my letters to my compassion kids or to Haiti or whatever, I mean, I'm full of joy. So that's what God knows that I need that, okay, as a human being. Even though my instinct is to not do that, what I really need is that, and I'm most joyful when I do that. When I'm greedy and selfish, I'm really miserable and full, you know, depressed and I'm down. But when I'm giving out of myself, and so God says, hey, and not only that, but I'm going to reward you for it. So I'm going to reward you for doing what you need to do anyway. Not only are you going to be full of joy when you do it, it's going to be just like you did it to me, and then I'm going to reward you for it. How cool is that? I mean, God sets up a thing. You need it. I'm going to not only give it to you, I'm going to reward you for it. So every... Every penny that we have given for our friends and our brothers and sisters in Haiti, God will reward us for that. I look in 2 Corinthians 9, it talks about God loves a cheerful giver. And I'll tell you what, for 10 years, I wasn't very cheerful about it. And in the church, we say, oh, you got to be cheerful. you got to be, well, maybe we hadn't given them anything to be happy about. You know, when you think about it, when you write a, whether it's a $15 or a $50 whatever check or a $4 check and it's feeding a child in Haiti or Africa, that makes me happy. I'm fired up. I just bought lunch for like a whole day for somebody. God loves a cheerful giver. Conduit, we want to give you something cheerful to be cheerful about. So uh, if, if you're online tonight, the, f- the few of you that are left, conduitmission.org. We were not sending you a love gift because we can't afford them. We give all the money away. Um, We're headed to Haiti March 30th through May 5th, a few of us. And then in June, Bucky, June 4th through the 11th, April 30th through, (laughs) we're going for a long time. No, April 30th through May 5th, we're going to go down there, uh, a few of us. And then in June 4th, through the whatever, 11th, Bucky and Kimmy are going to be leading another team down. Uh, and gang, this doesn't go down there and just do skits and get people to fill out cards that they got saved, okay? Um, I've done that. <laughs> fill out the cards, go back to your village, and forget this ever happened. Um, we're going down there, and we're changing people's lives. Like, when they talk about the salvation of the Lord there, it's a very, not only spiritual, but literal connotation to what's happening to their lives. So, um, Conduitmission.org, if you're online, you can donate online. You can donate online here, too, if you want to go home. Uh, we accept, you know, credit cards there. Uh, Would you take Visa MasterCard? Uh, and we don't have a bucket again. Oh, here we go. We're going to use uh, the Yay Yay bucket, okay? The Yay Yay bucket from Abigail for your donations tonight. Uh, we continue to give it all away and continue to be cheerful and joyful about it because... We're saving people's lives, so it's awesome. So, okay. Uh, rock and roll. It's the Yeah Yeah Bucket. Dude, that's a band name. It totally is. We're running out of good band names, but we just found one. The Yeah Yeah Buckets. Is Too Fat to Skate available? Because that's my band name. Tony, what? You guys think I'm kidding, but one of these days I'm going to get the band back together, Too Fat to Skate, and we're going to go on tour. Yep. <laughs> we're going to dominate. All staff of guys that are too fat to skate. We, had to, we broke up because the bass player got skinny. We had to break up. 